You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, that I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so the musical genre that I was drawn to from a very early age was punk rock. Um, now, you talk to, to Uncle Jake over here, Pastor Jake, he's going to claim that I was untimely born to like second and third wave sellout punk rock, but it was very real to me. Um, I grew up in a unique time in Sacramento where there were punk shows every single weekend. It was a strong scene. I was like prime candidate to get caught up. I was ripe and ready for rebellion. I was young. I was angsty. I came from a broken home. Uh, I came from a conservative religious family. Um, I went to private school. I wore a uniform, for goodness sake. Like, I was ready for something new. And this whole world was so alluring to me. It was all young people. If you were in your 20s, you were an old-timer. There's like the old-timers over there like that are 24. And there was like no supervision, no structure. It was loud and crazy, and people were like smoking cigarettes and cloves in the parking lot. And I'm like, this is, this is wild. This is crazy. 
And one of the most pre uh, prevalent messages of punk rock is anarchy. You cannot be a punk rock band unless you sing about, like, hating the government and, you know, singing about refusing to conform to the man. And while this is an extreme example, it actually expressed a very common idea that's still around today. And the idea is this, that really every single person only has two choices presented before them. You can either conform, become like a sellout sucker and become part of the system. You are a part of what's wrong with this world. Or you fight back and you take on the man. Sell out and conform or fight. But the question for us today as 21st century believers, as Bible believers, is what if there was another way? What if there was a better way? And it turns out that there actually is, and it's the way of the kingdom, which is neither conformity nor anarchy. See, what the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 8 does is he casts a vision for living these subversive lives, a quiet resistance of integrity, of patience, of joy. See, as you read through the Bible, all throughout the Bible, what you see is that God's people are described as those who are living between two kingdoms, in the tension between two kingdoms. For instance, Israel, who was God's promised, chosen uh, children, living in the promised land, but yet were taken and lived for over 400 years in and under the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt, and then later on in exile away from their home in Babylon. Or you read through the New Testament, or you read through the, the, the history of the first and second and third century church. They were living in the kingdom of God while still under the rule of the Roman Empire. It's a story that repeats itself. God's people in every generation, ours included today, are called to live well between two worlds, holding in tension the fact that we are right now presently within God's kingdom through faith. If you are a Christian, you are under the healing reign of King Jesus Christ. As Paul describes, your citizenship is not primarily American or some other nation in the world. Your citizenship is in heaven above. And yet, here we are. We still live in a broken world. We still live under broken governments that the Bible tells us that we need to submit to. We still live in broken societies that on a daily basis that we have to interact with. And so a repeated theme throughout the whole Bible is that God's people must learn. We must learn how to live well in between. So here's a question for you today. Are you living well in between? Are you remaining faithful in that tension? And how the preacher of Ecclesiastes sees it is that living well in between begins first with a focus on personal transformation. That's my first point today, personal transformation. Look with me again in verse one. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is what? Say it loud, changed. So this big vision of living well in broken empires begins with us changing. Us as God's people becoming radiant people who then visibly, not just internally, but visibly display the inner transformation of faith. 
Consider the context here. The verses, this verse actually, verse one, intros this long section about how we are to navigate worldly power. And so the, the change that God brings about in us, even in something as small and often overlooked as our facial expression, a smile, will be, then be used by God to display his heavenly reign in a way that subverts worldly power. I bet you didn't think about that last time you smiled. I am displaying the heavenly reign of King Jesus and his healing reign in a way that subverts the way of the world. It's often small changes that bring big results. In the years leading up to World War II, the Nazi regime started moving throughout Germany trying to gain alliance. One of their primary methods was to gain alliance with the Lutheran Church, the state church in Germany. Sadly, many churches endorsed the Nazi party. But there was a group of leaders that formed a resistance and began to establish these small seminaries in order to train and raise up leaders that would then plant churches that would refuse to come under the sway of national power. And one of the leaders was a man, and I'm sure that you've heard this name here before, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he formed a small little seminary called Finkenwald. It was small, unassuming, there was nothing spectacular about it, but it was forming some extraordinary countercultural disciples for the name of Jesus Christ. And what these leaders here realized was if the Nazi party had such immense power and ability to sway these large portions of the country, including, sadly, the church, then they were going to need to take serious the call to continually be formed as disciples of Jesus Christ. They understood, like we today need to understand, the subtle yet powerful ability for culture to shape people. And so what they said is we've got to increase our intentionality about spiritual formation. The scriptures tell us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Let's live as if that's true. So they had what seemed like this very regimented uh, practice of community. They had daily times of prayer, daily readings, daily fellowships. Statistics tell us that we as the church are struggling to show up once a week. The church was showing up every single day. They were extremely disciplined, a disciplined group of people. And out of the experience that they had together, Bonhoeffer wrote a book that you can still buy on Amazon today called Life Together. And so one of Bonhoeffer's friends reads his book, and he's like, what? What is going on here? And as he's observing, he, comes, he actually comes to visit this seminary and this church. And as he's observing this community, he pulls Bonhoeffer aside, and he says, okay, I see what you're doing here. I get it. I appreciate it. But don't you guys think that you're taking it a little bit too serious? Don't you think that maybe you should, like, ease up a little bit? So what Bonhoeffer does is he says, come with me. He takes them on a rowboat. They row across a waterway. They climb a hill that divides two valleys. And he says, look over here. And just beyond the hill was a military base where the Nazi party was beginning to mount their military attack. They were building their military forces undercover. This is a true story. And Bonhoeffer looks his friend in the face. And pointing back at this little Christian community, he says, this has to be stronger than that. 
What we're doing here has to be stronger than that. And the point was that our dedication to be formed as disciples of Jesus Christ, to live with integrity and joy and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, has to be stronger than their power to conform us. Because if we're not serious about this, then we are eventually going to conform to that. So I sometimes feel like the idea of spiritual formation or our commitment to growing in godliness is seen as irrelevant to Christians today, especially with all of the large-scale problems that we see going on in the world. Just tune into the news. There's such big things happening in the world right now. I remember having a conversation with someone mid-pandemic when there was extreme political divisions. It was just in the wake of George Floyd's murder and all the fallout from that. People were really anxious, and they asked me, what's the church going to do right now to pull through this? What's the church's response to this cultural moment? And I said, not even with thinking, like split second response, my answer was this. I think that it's time that we double down in our commitments to spiritual disciplines and helping Christians grow in Christ. And I'll never forget the look of disappointment. Like really? That's your answer? And I got news for you. I I need to be really clear. That is still my answer. That's the vision of this church. That this is our time to double down in our commitment to growing in godliness. Growing in Christ-like character. Growing in spiritual formation. An author named Wendell Berry, uh, he talked about how generally people want large-scale solutions in order to deal with large-scale problems. And that makes sense. There's big problems in the world. We need big solutions. And because of that, we're often dissatisfied with small, intentional steps that don't feel sensational enough. They don't feel big enough to be dealing with the problem. And so what we end up doing is we neglect the necessary small changes that, again, are necessary to experience personal and cultural change. We don't end up doing anything because we're waiting for something big and we're sleeping on the small. Now, the reality is that we see here, and this is maybe going to hurt a little bit, the reality is that you've got a lot less large-scale power than you think you do. You are not a very powerful person. Culturally speaking, politically speaking, societally speaking, you are not a powerful person. There are dynamics and structures in place that you just can't control. Now, we live in a democracy which gives us like a small sense that we have power, we have a voice, we can get out there and make a change, but the truth is, you and I, we can't control things. That is just another way of chasing after the wind. And so the preacher challenges the hasty person who thinks that they can just simply stroll into the king's presence and make big demands. This is what needs to happen. Look with me again in verse 3 through 4. Be not hasty to go from his presence, for he, speaking of the king, does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Who are you to say, what are you doing? So this is a warning against the sort of take-on-the-man approach. The one who is brash, the one who is abrasive, the one who blatantly challenges leaders and defies their decisions. And what he says is it will do you no good. It's no good, man. 
and it's likely going to harm you. This is not the way that the way of God advances. This is not the way of Jesus who went quietly and silently before his condemners. Instead, he says, here's your move. Here's your move in the face of power and government and societies and corrupt leadership. Number one, avoid taking your stand in evil. Avoid taking your stand in evil. Our eyes are out there, like this needs to change and this needs to change. He says, how about you focus on your own personal integrity? Before you're pointing out all these things that are wrong in the world, have you thought about your own life? Secondly, carry out what is right. Again, we can be so caught up in focusing on what's wrong that we are so, and so preoccupied with that that we never actually do anything right. This is how we affect change. We live faithfully. We do what God's word says. We do what is right by the people that live around us. The third thing, here's our third move. Wisely discern what each situation requires, verses five through six. The writer of Ecclesiastes has been pointing out there's a time for everything. There is gonna be a time where you need to act. But there's also going to be a time where you keep silent, where you're patient. You need wisdom refined in the fire of life and through experience and through God's wisdom and his word in order to navigate all of life's complexity. Don't go in there guns blazing, think you got all the answers. Patiently wait it out and then when it's the right time, respond. And lastly, invest yourself into that which will outlast worldly power. He alludes to this in verse eight. What the the preacher essentially says that it doesn't matter how powerful you are, no one is going to be able to prolong their life. It doesn't matter who you are, you're gonna die. It doesn't matter who they are, they're gonna die. And so the point is this, even the king will die, but what you do for God's kingdom has the power to outlast him. Yes, he may rage and look powerful, But a hundred years from now, he'll simply be a name in the history books. But what you do for the kingdom of God will last. It will outlast his rotting bones. Can I get an amen? So here's the big idea. And you've heard me repeat this many times. The big idea is this. We don't make changes to culture and society by forcibly trying to change it. The only way to effectively change things is by presenting something new and more beautiful that makes the old obsolete. By investing ourselves in the eternal things that will outlast every leader, every nation, every cultural trend. By going all in on Christ and his kingdom that has no end. Now, along with our commitment to personal transformation, we also need a patient confidence. Look at me in verses 10 through 11. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. 
the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So have you ever thought to yourself, man, life is so unfair. Life is so unfair. If you've ever thought that, you're not the first, nor will you be the last. The preacher was bothered by a number of situations. This is him retelling of the things that he sees in life that's like, what is wrong? In other words, well, what he mentions here is that the wicked people are praised in their eulogies. You ever been to a funeral where people go on and on about how wonderful someone is and you're like, I know you hated them. They were a horrible person. What are you doing? That's not benefiting them. That's not benefiting you. No one is benefited by that. Be honest. That was a bad person. Let's move on. The righteous are treated like the wicked deserve. The wicked are treated like the righteous deserve. And in that mix of all these really unfair situations, as they stack up, it takes a toll on our faith. It's hard to keep believing that there is a just God when we live in such an unfair world. Faith is challenged. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he wrote about this being one of his struggles early on. He said this, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. I can't believe in a God that is behind such an unjust world. But then he said, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So anytime we see something wrong in this world, anytime we think to ourselves, that is messed up, and someone should do something about that, where does that sense of fair and unfair come from? Where does that knowledge, that like intrinsic knowledge of fair and unfair come from? It can't simply be a biological reaction. Could you imagine just like turning on the news and seeing the, one of the horrible things happening in this world, being moved to tears, someone walking in and saying, what's going on? And you're saying, I'm just having a biological reaction to the things that are going on in this world. See how much that undermines compassion? See how that undermines love? The knowledge of things being unfair means that there must be a standard by which we measure fairness. Science is incapable of establishing this. Human history has been anything but fair. We can't point back to like a fair time in history. Anthropology and philosophy, they don't give us those standards of fairness. There is nothing under the sun that we can point to and say, that's the measure, that's the metric. So then the question is, where does it come from? Remember, this is the point. The understanding that is deep within, I think, every human person. I mean, one of the first things kids learn to say is, that's not fair. The point is that it comes from beyond the sun. You're right, it's not under the sun. It's beyond the sun. That desire for things to be fair points us to the truth that there is a God, that he is just, and that he's created us to live according to his ways and under his just rule. And whenever we're feeling unsettled, what we're actually longing for, whether we know it or not, is for God to make things right. What we're longing for is for Jesus to come do what humanity simply can't do for ourselves. And it's not a matter if, of if God will make things right. It's a matter of when. This is our confidence. 
See, the preacher says that the sentence is not executed speedily. It's not that justice is completely void, but justice is delayed. Now, there's a legal motto today that says justice delayed is justice what? Denied. Very good. Justice delayed is justice denied. And I get the point behind that. You don't want to be rotting away in a jail waiting for your court date. But it's not entirely true. Because Christianity, our faith, what we are doing here right now, hinges on the hope of a future day when Jesus returns to make everything wrong right again. We are waiting for future justice. Our eyes are set forward into a confident future when Jesus returns. The preacher goes on in verses 12 through 13 to say this, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will, it prolong, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. That's an interesting statement there. Yet I know, I am confident that it will be well. The confidence that we have is that there's a significant movement that is coming, a great reversal of the way things are. And we're told here that the wicked, that prolong their lives, that seem to avoid all of the consequences for the horrible decisions that they make, it will not go well for them in the end. Their time is coming. And those who fear God, who suffer in this lifetime, but love, who love and trust him, it will be well with them. But we have to patiently wait to see the outcomes. We cannot base our judgment on how things are right now. We have to base our judgment on the things, or rather the ways that God has promised things will be. Not by what, what is right now, but by what will be. It's the kind of patience that allows us to resist getting frantic and losing our integrity. You ever notice that nothing leads to compromise quite like being frantic? Think about the silly things we did at the very beginning of pandemic when we were frantic. We compromise. And so when our neighbors and our friends and our family members are losing their freaking minds, by God's grace, we keep our wits doesn't mean we're the wisest or the strongest. We stay calm. We have confident resolve. We don't get panicky. We don't give in because we know that it's going to end well. Because we know the end of the story. It doesn't matter how many plot twists are there, there are along the way. We know how the story concludes. And notice it doesn't say it will go well with those who fear God. The preacher says it will be well with those who fear God. In eternity, we know it's all going to go well. But in the meantime, it will be well, which means for the Christian, it can be well right now, even when it doesn't go well in your life. Can I get an amen? I've shared a story of Horatio Spadford before. He's a believing individual in the 1800s. He lost his son to illness uh, he lost all of his belongings in the great Chicago fire. And then he lost all of his remaining four children, all daughters, when their ship sank in the Atlantic Ocean. And in the wake of all of these significant losses just within a matter of a few years, in his immense grief and suffering, 
he wrote one of the most famous hymns we have today. He wrote these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's not going well, but it is well. So how does he say that? And how are we, when we face significant challenges like that, able to say the same thing? Well, he concludes with this statement. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. It doesn't make sense right now. I don't understand what is going on, but I don't need to know why. I need to know who. I need the hope of the gospel. And because of what I have in Jesus Christ and all the promises I have in him, I can say even now it is well with my soul. Let's look finally and very briefly at persistent joy. Verses 14 through 15. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. And there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend what? Joy. For a man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So the preacher's honest. You're gonna see things in life that don't promote happiness. You're gonna see things in life that cause you to despair. We live in a world broken by sin, disconnected from the way things are, and it's not gonna naturally stir joy. But he says, you still have to persist on experiencing joy. It's gonna be a fight. It's not going to come easy. It's going to feel strange at times. It may even seem like extravagant and like out of place, but you have to. I commend joy. Now, some commentators believe that he's just being cynical here. He's essentially saying, you're all going to die. You can't change anything. You might as well drink a lot and have fun. Maybe. (laughs) That wouldn't surprise me so far with the preacher that we're dealing with here. But I think more specifically, more realistically, That what he's saying is joy is something that goes with you throughout all the days that God has given you. The Bible would tell us elsewhere that joy is the strength of the Lord. Joy is what causes us to persevere and keep going. There's a scene from the movie Shawshank Redemption where Andy is trying to get red to hope again. He's institutionalized. He can't think of life outside of the prison. And Red begins to recall days when he would play the harmonica, and he says, well, I stopped playing because it doesn't really make sense in here. And Andy responds, and he says, this is exactly where it makes most sense. You need music so you don't forget. And Red says, forget what? And Andy responds, forget that there are places in this world that aren't made out of stone. In other words, so that you don't forget that there is a better world awaiting you. And then Andy says this famous line that I'm sure we're all familiar with. He says, I guess it comes down to one simple choice. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's what the preacher's saying. You have a choice before you. Get busy living with joy 
or give in to despair and get busy dying. But you can't remain in the middle. Joy is the way that we push back against the forces of despair. In fact, one theologian said joy is an act of resistance against the forces of despair. It doesn't disregard suffering. It doesn't pretend like everything's okay in this world, but instead it emerges as a sort of defiant joy and says, I'm not letting you sweep me up. I'm not letting you take me down. So where do we get this joy? Well, the preacher offers some ways under the sun. Food, drink, friends. These are all things that God has given us to enjoy in moderation. But the reality is, like everything under the sun, it's going to keep us coming back for more. Right? You, you get hungry again. There's always a new opportunity for a new wine out there. Friends come and go. And so the question is, where do we find lasting joy? And as you probably have guessed by now, my answer is going to be that lasting joy comes from beyond the sun. A joy that will never run out. And we get a hint of it in this passage when he says that a righteous person is treated as the wicked person deserves and the wicked person is treated as the righteous person deserves. Now that's a description of all that's wrong with this world, by the way. But it's also a description of the cure. It's actually a very concise way of describing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this. The only righteous one, Jesus, came into this world to suffer and die. The only one who truly deserved to live a prosperous life, a blessing, chose to experience the ruin of the wicked. The worst things happened to him so that the best things could happen to us. And at the cross, he got what we deserve because of our sin so that in that exchange of faith, we could get what he deserves through his righteousness. And it's faith in this life-changing news that fills us with joy. Next time your joy is threatened, next time you're tempted to despair, next time you're like me and you're self-loathing, next time you've got that grumpy attitude of like, life is so unfair, remember how unfair the gospel is. Remember how unfair Jesus' treatment was. Remember how unfair grace or undeserved kindness is to you. And may that fill you with joy. And may that strengthen your confidence and resolve. And may that make your face shine radiantly and brightly into a dark, despairing world. Amen? Father, fill us with this.